party people. Y'all here to get high and talk about horror movies? Because we are. You know it. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. This Fried Squirms, where we're going to talk about Hellraiser 3 today. Hell on Earth. Before that, this motherfucker. Dude, you showed up with so many fucking joints. <laughs> yeah, it was your birthday weekend. I had I to come know. over with something. Didn't even know where to start, but... Well, I, I brought you one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so, I got her sparked up right now. So we'll start. I guess we'll start with that. We'll get into some of our green hits. Okay. I threw at threw at you a little bit of some star fruit that I picked up from Lionheart Caregiving here in town. Fucking star fruit genetics is going to be kumquat. Excuse me. And otter pops. Hmm. And. According to this thing I just looked up, it's uh, often dubbed the perps with the orange terps. Hell yeah. Now, I ain't actually tried it yet. I just picked those it up It tastes earlier. good, man. It tastes really You're nice. You liking it? That's yeah. good. That's good. Nice, and easy smoke. Dude, you brought over a shit ton. I don't know if you want to go through them all. Yeah, I got but them all pulled I'll, up. I'll mention that what I'm going to start with is okay. you brought some purple crack. Cool. So That's what I'm going to start with. I do have some information regarding that. So this... Strain are these strains I did pick up from Greener Pastures Dispensary here in town. And with Purple Crack, this is a strain that's highly prized in California. So it says that it is a bit of a newcomer to the cannabis scene. So depending on which grower or which seed bank you get this from, one is Cola Family, the other one is Cali Connection. So Cali's version is bred by crossing Green Crack with a Black Watermill. Wycola seems to be the more widely seen selection, and they've uh, taken green crack and combined it with juicy fruit for an 85 to 15 sativa dominant strain that's uh, pungent and potent. So with this guy, they normally test out at about, I don't know, 17 so percent, but this particular one that I brought over is sitting right at 25.6 percent. So this one is known for being helping you get relaxed and a little bit creative things like that so yeah we'll see how that one turns out i haven't tried that one either i haven't tried any of the ones that i gave you i haven't lit it up yet but i'm just i'm giving a little bit of a suck just to just to get a little bit of the flavor and i'm, yeah. I'm digging it so far so Got let's see what it a little bit i'm gonna light this up all right cool. i'm gonna get these green hits i'll go we'll through start. the other oh, yeah. strains yeah, oh, yeah that i brought over because i actually have some information on those gotcha. so the other joint that i brought over for you is blue skittles it is an indica dominant cross of blue diamond and skittles it says uh this offers a terpene profile of tart citrus sweet earth and wildflowers so it's going to have a little bit of the herbal piney and peppery tastes this one's testing out at 22 percent all right the other one that i brought over is triple x og all right so this one's testing at 27 percent its parents are the strains OG Kush and Triple X. It said it took the Indica first place at the 2014 Los Angeles Cannabis Cup. Okay. Yeah, so this one also has those herbal, citrusy, and peppery notes. I haven't tried that one either. It looks like it helps with stress and pain, insomnia, some anxiety. You'll feel relaxed, uh, happy, a little sleepy, some euphoria. Yeah, so I'm excited about trying that one out. And the last one that I did bring over as well is the Gummy Bear, which is an evenly balanced hybrid strain. It's 50-50 Indica uh, in Sativa. So this was uh, created through crossing the delicious True OG 
with strawberry, banana, and blackberry strains. So the effects that people usually get from this is they'll feel aroused, cerebral, energized, focused, and uplifted. This may help with relieving chronic pain, depression, insomnia, mood swings, nausea, and stress. And people have noted that the flavors tend to be, you'll get some like berry taste, some citrusy, lemony, some strawberry and sweet notes, and the aromas you'll get from it are most of the same with a little bit of earthy and sweet and sour smell. So, gotcha. Yeah, dude. I wanted to do a good mix. They tend to do a pretty good deal over there on their J's. And uh, once again, I like that they use raw papers, man. It's hard to go wrong with those. I will say earlier to go with my other podcast and so that I didn't get too stoned. For the first time, I picked up some uh, half gram pre-rolls because normally we roll through these grams, right? Oh, yeah. Man, I, I got it thinking because every once in a while I'll sit down with one of these gram cannons, right? And I might be a seasoned smoker, but sometimes it just hits perfect. You know what yeah, I mean? And you're yeah. sitting there and you're out of it. Like, and I'm oh, like, yes, I don't need to be out of it. Give me the half gram and I'll, I'll be good to go. Man, I don't think I'm ever doing that bullshit again. I've smoked one of those and I'm like, what the? Did I smoke something? <laughs> that was like the a starter. What is this noise, dude? <laughs> and I don't think it was the, like the weed seemed like it was yeah. good. I just, a gram might be a little bit much at some point, but a half gram is never enough. So <laughs> I feel you there, man. Yeah, we're seasoned vets, so our tolerance is. <laughs> it's weird though, because you know, you, I mean, we've talked about it before. Every yeah. once in a while, being as seasoned as you are, you'll, some sometimes strains. you'll just sit down with a joint and it'll do you in. Man, right? you're not kidding. Every I, I will say this, man. I, I've been thinking about it lately. I still have some of it left, but that chocolate tie hits me a little different some, than some of these other sativas and strains. So yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, shit. I can't. Oh, what was it? I had some uh, some lamb's bread a couple weeks ago that. It was testing it only at like 20%, and it was a fucking sativa, but that thing had me just as couch locked man. Yeah, they'll hit you a little differently. So, I guess the moral of that story is, fuck half-gram joints. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) I guess now that we're getting high, we can get into the rest of our show. Let's talk about some Hellraiser 3. Start off with the guts and bolts. Guts and Bolts. Alright, so Guts and Bolts. This is your first time. Go through some of the cast and crew. Let you know what this movie's about without getting into spoilers. To start that off, we'll go with my spoiler-free setup. I'm not going to use synopsis anymore. I think I've been using synopsis wrong. My spoiler-free setup to the movie. I'm just, Yeah, I've, I've never even... My fucking stoner ass even forgets to keep looking it up. Like... I don't care. Maybe I was using it right. Don't care. Bugs me. Spoiler free set. (laughs) Uh, Hellraiser 3. So it's the third one. So hopefully you at least know like you're going to get pinhead and shit. Like that shouldn't be a spoiler, right? So a douchey club owner comes into possession of the cube, which doesn't play as big of a part in this one. And basically comes into contact with Pinhead, and things go amuck from there. Really, th- that's not really the story of this movie, but I have to get into spoilers to be able to tell what's right, really right. going on. So I'm not yeah. going to quite go there yet. That's that's the setup. Yeah, I mean that that gets played out in the very beginning mm-hmm. of the film, so it's not really a spoiler per se. So yeah. So with that, of course, we like to talk about our cast and crew from week to week. I'm going to lead off with our director, and this gentleman is Anthony Hickox. And some of his feature films that he's known for, actually some films I really enjoy, are both Waxwork and Waxwork 2, Lost in Time. He's also known for directing such films as Warlock, the Armageddon, 
Payback from 95, the film Prince Valiant, Contaminated Man, Last Run, the films Blast and Submerged. And he's also noted for doing some television work on such things as New York Undercover, which I used to watch back in the 90s. It was a pretty decent procedural, yeah. And such other things as the television show 2 from 95 for the pilot episode. And uh, I guess more recently, Shoot Me back in 2003. Mm. All right, we have a couple gentlemen on the writing credits, and I'd have to note that these characters, or at least some of them, are based off of Clive Barker's, right, from his novels. And we have Peter Atkins. He's responsible for the story and screenplay. We've actually talked about him before, a number of these people before, because we reviewed Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, on our seventh episode. Mm-hmm. For those who are curious, that was way back in the day. Way back, dude. Yeah, way so, back. Hey, that was way, way back. <laughs> way back, boys. <laughs> we go way back. That's right. <laughs> And, believe it or not, he's also responsible for the screenplay for our 88th episode, because we reviewed Wishmaster. Oh, shit. That was also Peter Atkins? Yeah, dude. I didn't realize that. All right. Now, he's also known for writing, and, well, basically because the characters are based off of his creations for most of all the Wishmaster, the first four Mm -hmm. films at Mm -hmm. least, and it looks like Hellraiser part... Well, I'm not sure which part it is because it's Hellraiser Prophecy and Hellraiser Dead or Winter's Lament and uh, Prisoners of the Sun. Now, he's also an actor in this film as well, and I'll mention him once we get into the acting credits. All right, now we have Tony Randall. We have to mention him because he was the director of Hellbound Hellraiser 2, so we've mentioned him before as well. Uh, Yeah. But they didn't want him to direct this one, hence why Anthony Hickox is on it. Apparently his was going to be a little bit more bleak. Yeah, they didn't like the direction, because his was supposed to end, I think in his version, the Terry character was the main character, and it ends with her agreeing to basically marry Pinhead, or something like that, like, she basically enters a deal with the devil in the end, and like, that's, it ends on like a down note, where she's like, nope, I'm gonna become a bad guy. Yeah, and... There was different things, and of course we'll get into all that, like how this film came to fruition, what the people involved and whatnot. But yeah, there was bigger plans for the Julia character, and the actress who played that, she yeah, she didn't want to. So in the second one, they pretty much killed her off. So if you're up to date on your Hellraiser, (laughs) that's what's going on leading into this film. All right. So some of the writing credits that Tony has actually include Godzilla from 1985. That's the English version, Mm -hmm. even though he went uncredited. He also helped with uh, Children of the Night, Inside Out, and Inside Out 2. There's two different segments, the Leda for Inside Out and Inside Out 2, the segment The Freak. He also helped with Motorhead's Hellraiser video and yeah, Fist of the North Star, which is really cool as well. Well, the the 1995 live action, live action right Fist of the North Star. yeah yeah because there is an animation <laughs> and uh, there was a video game back in the day too mm-hmm. that was pretty cool I actually played it a few times all right we have our cinematographer is Jerry Lively he's another one of these gentlemen that we've actually mentioned before and if you look at some of his credits he goes back because he's helped with wax work he's also done such things as wax work part two motorheads hellraiser music video return of the living dead part three necronomicon book of the dead parts two three and the wraparound in that one children of the corn part three he was a cinematographer on friday 
And I'm talking about the Ice Cube Friday, which is awesome. A Hellraiser Bloodline, some other things include, let's hear, Dementomania, Little Savages. And more recently, he's got a couple things in post-production, but it looks like things like End of Term, Await the Dawn, Love Zombies, and Fallen Leaf. Mm. All right, we have... Editors to the gentleman, we have Christopher Sibeli, and he's known for editing such things as Waxwork and Waxwork Part 2. Now, I do have to mention, a lot of these guys, of course, work with Anthony Hickox. That's why he brought them on board for this. Some other things include Warlock, the Armageddon, The Prophecy Part 2, Children of the Corn, The Gathering, The Lost City. He did some uh, things on television, uh, eight episodes of Dirt, State of Mind. The Mentalists, yeah, for 55 episodes is pretty interesting. And uh, more recently, The Enemy Within television show. All right, and the other gentleman on this was James D.R. Hickox. Now, he's known for editing Motorhead's Hellraiser video, Warlock the Armageddon, and the film Deadly Exposure. All right, the music was composed by Randy Miller. Now, this gentleman's got some really cool bodies of work, man. And if you look at... Not what he composed, but what he did for the orchestral parts of films. We'd be sitting here all day because we can go back and say like Tremors, the film, The Never Ending Story Part 2, Toy Soldiers. But for stuff that he actually composed, maybe not as big, but some pretty interesting ones. Uh, such things as Witchcraft from 1988, which is a film my sister and I used to watch. Darkman Part 2, The Return of Durant. The TV series Mantis from 94 through 95. Oh, Darkman Part 3. Die, Darkman, die. <laughs> the Outer Limits uh, back in 96 through 98. And Firestarter Part 2. And Spartacus, the TV movie. So a few yeah. things of note. Yeah. Mm. But some of his arrangements for the orchestral are a lot more impressive. It's, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I have a few special effects notes I want to make mention of. Uh, one's a company, their Real Eye Company. I think we've mentioned them before because they help with these special effects contact lenses for okay. Doug Bradley. And Bob Keen is a gentleman I have to make mention of because he has worked on a couple of other Clive Barker films, such things as Candyman and Hellraiser, the original Cruel, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, waxwork. So he's familiar with a lot of guys from these series. He also did stuff on Star Wars Episode Four and Episode Part Six, Nightbreed. So yeah, Shit. he's had his That's hands cool. on some pretty cool creature effects. All right, this film was produced by Christopher Fig and Lawrence Mortorf. Production companies were Dimension Films, Fifth Avenue Entertainment, Nostradamus Pictures Incorporated, and Transatlantic Entertainment. The distributors were Dimension Films and Miramax. Miramax? Miramax. For the 1992 United States theatrical release. We have two different release dates. We have a release date of May in 1992 in Milan, Italy for the Dylan Dog Horror Fest. And believe it or not, not only is this the second time <laughs> that we've had to mention this date, but it also happens to be another Clive Barker-inspired film that's released on this date. Never forget. Never forget part two. Part D. <laughs> Never forget. Right, because this was released on September 11th, 1992 here in the United States. Hell on Earth on September 11th. <laughs> I think this guy might have been a visionary is what I'm seeing here in more ways than one. He keeps putting out this fucked up shit all over that date. And this one happens to take place, quote unquote, in New York City. That's right. Hell on Earth in New York City, <laughs> September 11th. 
Right. We have a, an estimated budget of five million dollars, and its gross, believe it or not, was twelve and a half million dollars. So not bad. No, nah, did fairly well I mean, considering for its budget. Yeah, exactly. Not bad. All right. There's a few taglines, but I do have two I want to make mention of. The first one I have is "What began in hell will end on Earth." I just realized that that means Jay and motherfucking Silent Bob Strike Back made twice what this movie did at the box office. A little over twice. And somehow that doesn't seem to add up to me, considering this is part of the Hellraiser franchise. But I guess we'll get into why that makes sense in the next section. All right. (laughs) All right. The second tagline I have for this film is, he'll offer you the heights of ecstasy, but you'll spend eternity in the depths of hell. That one does not fit for this movie. I do not like that one at all. I'll (laughs) go with the first one. We'll get into that. That is terrible for this movie. I know it, right? Okay, so moving into our cast, we have Terry Farrell. She plays the role of Joanne Joey Summerskill. Now, some of the films that Terry's known for is if you've ever seen the Rodney Dangerfield film, Back to School from 1986. Fucking love Back to School. That movie's great, man. The triple diving board jump. It's pretty awesome. The triple indie? Yeah, the triple indie. It's so awesome. She's also been in such films as Off the Mark. You might have seen her in Red Sun Rising. Reasons of the Heart, Deep Core, and Tripping the Rift. And she's been in quite a few things in television. The Cosby Show. She was also in The Twilight Zone back in 1986. You might have seen her in Family Ties. She was also in Quantum Leap. Star Trek Deep Space Nine is where a lot of people will recognize her because she played Jadza Dax for 148 episodes. Wait, no, no, no. Here we go. This one's for you, Jesse. Terry Farrell was Cat in the U.S. pilot for Red Dwarf. Oh, that's pretty awesome. That one's for you. Nice. (laughs) Hell yeah. Let's see. She was also in Becker for 94 episodes. Dude, yeah, no. That's probably where I know her best because I used to watch a shit ton of Becker. Nice. She also did some video game voice acting for Star Trek Deep Space Nine Harbinger back in 96, the 1996 Treasure Quest game, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine The Fallen back in 2000. Yeah, because she's Lieutenant Dax. So Pretty awesome. All right, not that I have to mention this, gentlemen, because we already have mentioned him before, but we have Doug Bradley, who plays the dual roles of Pinhead and Captain Elliot Spencer. And, of course, we talked about him because of Hellbound, Hellraiser Part D. I mean, Doug Bradley's Pinhead. Dude, that's all you really need to know. That's all you need to know is Doug Bradley is Pinhead. If you ever see him anywhere else, he's making a cameo because he's Pinhead. <laughs> yeah, let's see. We've actually talked about him because he was also in Nightbreed, Nightbreed. as well. Yeah, yeah, which is really awesome. Some other things include Pumpkinhead, Ashes to Ashes, looks like Book of Blood, The Cottage, Exorcismus. I mean, these are some things we've mentioned before, but forever known or will be known as Pinhead. But I will say this, man, he's got some acting chops, like almost Shakespearean, <laughs> the way he delivers lines. So a little bit underrated there. You know, he's great. He is so Pinhead. Dude. He's not, never. he's never not Pinhead. <laughs> Even things from before, if there's, I don't know if things exist from before he was Pinhead. If things exist from before he's Pinhead, he's pinhead. it's still a cameo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving forward, we have Paula Marshall. She plays the role of Terry. She's also, well, let me hold off on that. She also does a two different parts I'll mention later on, too. It's kind of a spoiler. But this is actually her screen debut. 
because she went on to do other films that include such things as Warlock, The Armageddon. You might have seen her in A Family Thing. She was in the film Cheaper by the Dozen. I Knew Who Killed Me, which is actually a pretty decent film. She was also in such things as Miss Nobody, Fathers and Daughters, and We Love You, Sally Carmichael. Now, I think some people might recognize her because she's been on quite a few television shows, such things as Spin City. She had a recurring role in that. She was also in Just Shoot Me. She's Iris West in the 90s. Well, she's the she's Iris West in the pilot of the 90s Flash. She was in Seinfeld. She was also in The Wonder Year. So, like I said, uh, Californication, which is a show I really liked, CSI, House, 9-11, Law & Order. So, yeah, a lot of television credits. Really cool. All right, moving forward, we have Kevin Barnhart, and he plays the role of J.P. Monroe. He actually has another role a bit later on in the film. Of course, we'll mention then. But in terms of acting, people might know him for such things as Top of the World. He was also in the film The Immortals in Counterforce. In, in television, he started off in General Hospital. Looks like from 84 through 87, where he played Kevin O'Connor and Frisco Jones. And then he was also in Dynasty, Superboy, and Young Dracula. All right, moving forward, I have Ken Carpenter. He plays the role of Daniel Doc Fisher. He also plays another role, of course, later on in this film. But some people might know him uh, for the movies Blood Games, Phantom of the Paradise, and The Terror at Big Bear Lake. All right, we have Peter Atkins, which I mentioned he was one of the writers in this film. Now, Peter has actually been in such things as Nightbreed. He was actually an extra in that, uh, even though he went uncredited. He was also in Clive Barker's Salome and the Forbidden. He was in The Naked Monster and The Boneyard Collection. Now, he plays the role of Rick the Barman in this film, and he also has another role later on as well. All right, we have actress Amy Lee. Now, she plays the role of Sandy, who's like the really pretty blonde in this film. She's gone on to actually do some voice work on a few things, which I find really interesting. So you might have heard of her in some video games, uh, starting with Serious Sam, some things as Predator Concrete Jungle back in 2005, Evil Dead Regeneration back in 2005. She was in Ultimate Spider-Man as a male pedestrian. She was in Land of the Dead, Road to Fiddler's Green, and Aliens, Colonial Marines. So, a lot of video game voice acting. All right, there's two cameos. One I'm going to hold off on until later on. Okay. One is because she's an integral part of this series, and that's Ashley Lawrence. Now, she makes a cameo appearance via videotape. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But people should know her as Kirsty Cotton from the original two, Hellraiser and Hellbound. And yeah, she's also known for such things as Lightning Bug. She was Mrs. McCormick in the film Red. Some people also might have known her for being in television series like Hercules Legendary Journeys, Suddenly Susan, and Beverly Hills 90210. So yeah, it's pretty cool to see a little bit of an appearance from her. All right, so that pretty much rounds out my cast and crew. There's one other cameo. Oh, there is? The entire heavy metal band Armored Saint. Oh, yeah, yeah. I should mention those. Well, since I'm on that note, let me mention this gentleman, too. All right. There's Clayton Hill. He plays the priest a little bit later on in this film. The reason I bring him up is because he was in George Romero's Dawn of the Dead back in 78. He was a zombie on the escalator. He's like a sweater zombie. Yeah. And he was also in George Romero's film Night Riders. From like 19, I want to say it was like 81, 82, somewhere around there. Yeah, so I didn't want to make mention of that. 
And the other gentleman I have is Peter G. Boynton. He plays the role of Joey's father in some of these flashback sequences. But he was more notably known for being in As the World Turns back in 1986 all the way back through 1991. So, yeah, that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. You gave us a spoiler-free synopsis. We should definitely give you some warnings in this film. I think this movie has the highest kill count of any Hellraiser. Oh, I'd say by far. By far. Considering, So yeah. there's that, and there's some pretty good effects thrown onto those bodies at times. Yes, there are. So there's some pretty decent blood and gore through this. And it's Hellraiser, so it's not a spoiler to say that, like, you've got hooks going through flesh. Like, you get a lot of that. Yeah. Now, you do get also some nudity, some sexy times. Some very sexy times. Some language. Yes. Ooh, some very sacrilegious imagery. Yeah, there's some blasphemy in this film. That even caused problems on set. Yeah, considering where it was filmed. <laughs> it's just funny. And what am I missing? Am I missing anything? Or is no, that all the warnings we got? I'd say, yeah, if you're averse to what we had mentioned with blood gore, some nudity, some blasphemy... Got some hell on earth. Yeah, there you go. Let's get to some hell on earth. Let's find out how this movie made us squeal. How does that make you squeal? What episode number is this? Like, how many has it? 168. So it's been 161 episodes since we've talked about Pinhead. Quite a few. God damn. It's been a fucking minute, dude. I know. I had to do a little recap on what happened in the first two and then of course you know once i started watching some of those recaps it's like okay now it's making more sense i really should have done that because the one thing that i really remembered from when we talked about number two was we're like after watching number two having seen number one the most times like we might have to give this one as being the best one but it'd been too long since i'd seen number three yeah that being said number three does not live up to number two (laughs) (laughs) no i mean they're Two different films tonally, so it makes sense. I went into it wanting to be like, okay, which of these is better? And as I was watching it, I was just like, I don't remember enough of number two. Yeah. But I know that this isn't better. No, I mean, I, I knew when we picked it, it wasn't going to be better, but that was okay because I've, I've actually seen this one more than I've seen the original two. Oh, really? Just okay. because of the time period it came out in, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess, what's that? What's your history? with? I know that I've seen this at least once before. I couldn't tell you for sure when, but it probably would have been, I don't know, at like a sleepover or something in the mid-90s. Yeah. Like, because this film came out in 92, I probably would have seen this. Either that or I probably saw uh, an edited version on TV during like a Hellraiser marathon. Yeah, I could see that. I remember seeing this probably like in 90, I'm going to say honestly, probably like 93, late 93, maybe early 94, somewhere around that time period. Because I remember catching these kind of films late at night. That was part of the reason I stayed up late at night, too, was because you could watch shit like this. And the one scene that stuck out to me, which I'll mention later on, has to do with the statue of the pillar and the blonde in this film. Right. That was the one scene. I, anytime I think about this film is usually what I attach to it. Right? Everything else I kind of forgot. But uh, I remember seeing it probably like in bits and pieces because at that time period, Hellraiser was still like fringy kind of like oh i don't know if i want to watch these you know it wasn't because i was i didn't like them or was averse to them because i was like this is kind of like a different type of horror film it's it's a little bit freakier Mm -hmm. (laughs) so to speak so i kind of shied away from them for a little while but this is 
more or less my introduction a little bit into Hellraiser, to be honest. God, I guess since it's been so long since we've talked about Pinhead, like, I think this is what I said on the first episode. Like, I just always, for some reason, Pinhead tends to be grouped in with a lot of the classic slashers, even though he's not a slasher, but it's yeah. just because he became popular in the same time period. I totally agree with you there. Um, and of that grouping that we grew up with, he was always kind of my favorite, just from pure design standpoint. Yeah, aesthetically, he's he's amazing. And so, like, I always got down a little bit more on Hellraiser than the others growing up. But the one that I had the most access to growing up was just the first one. And then I'd seen number two a couple of times. And I probably saw this one at least twice. Like, it's legitimately probably been 20 years since I last saw it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Maybe even longer than that. 20 years ago, it put me at 13. I'm thinking the last time I saw this might have been younger. I want to say the last cognitive memory I have of this is probably like when I was a teenager. So sometime in high school, I was probably like 16 or 17 the last time I'd seen this. Because I think this is one of those movies that like, I wasn't allowed to watch The Exorcist till I was 13 because my dad had thought it was the scariest movie ever. (laughs) And I watched it and I was disappointed because I had already seen worse movies. Right. And I think this was one of those, you know what I mean? Like this was one of the ones I could point to like, but I saw that like... Yeah, this is, like, way more hardcore. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, that chick got her skin ripped off. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I know, right? Anyway. <laughs> but, like I said, I haven't seen it since I was just a fucking super young Wee. pup. The only thing I could have told you going into this about this one is that I remembered going into it that it's the one that deals a lot more with Elliot Spencer. Yeah. Totally makes sense. The way this story unfolds. And the reason why they chose to do that in the first place, maybe a little catching people up just in case, right? So the first two, because they were more British produced and... And based, like yeah. they're set in England. Right. I mean, Which that's, I always forget. But. Yeah. Clive Barker's went from Liverpool. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of his films have that feel, that tone, that narrative, you know, and so it feels more gothic. And so those characters, the Cenobites, aren't necessarily the focal point and the films, it has more like this family, this relationship stuff going on that leads to darker things, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas in this film, because of what happened with production companies, right? So Nightbreed, because of the way Fox marketed that film, made it look like it was more of a slasher. It bombed at the box office. And one of the production companies that was involved with it went bankrupt and the other company as well was going bankrupt. And so two of the guys, the two producers from those, or executive producers, they formed a different production company, picked up the rights to this. Mm. And they tried to flesh things out with Clive Barker. And, you know, things were kind of iffy, mainly because, like I said, Tony Randall wasn't going to be directing it. And they know bringing somebody else in, it was going to change the tone. And because it was more of an American production this time around... They market it more towards like the slasher realm, yeah. Making Pinhead the more focal point, so that's why things start to change from the first two going into this film. We also end up with a super compressed shooting schedule. Yeah, it was very short compared to the other two, partially because they needed the time to rework the script once Julia wasn't coming back. Exactly. So they had to change things around. Yeah. I don't know if Tony Randall was ever officially attached to direct before they decided to go with Hickox, but that's another, like that change was another thing that like 
compress the shooting schedule. Yeah, like, for sure. There was still the discussions leading up until production, basically. Yeah, so there was a lot of things conceptually that they had to cut out, and there were some things that they did keep in to still you know, make this story make sense and progress, whatnot. But while we're talking about directors, as a little bit of trivia, do you know who else they asked to make this? Uh, I want to say... I was going to say Peter Jackson. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I thought I'd read something about that. <laughs> but because he was a little bit more comedic, and I think that's the problem they were having a little bit with Anthony Hickox because of waxwork, it has comedy in it. Mm-hmm. It's not a comedy horror, but there's elements. So this was 92? Yeah. So this is coming straight off Man. of... Brain Dead. Brain Dead. Yeah. Can you imagine Brain Dead era fucking <laughs> Peter Jackson getting his hand on this? Wow. What could have been? Yeah. The fucking... It'd be awesome to see what he could would have done with it. The aftermath of the club? Dude. So gory. Like, no discredit, because I thought all that stuff looked great. But that would have been a different level. That would have been a... Yeah. A whole different level. Yeah. With that body count? <laughs> Damn. Okay. So, I mean, we'll get... Like we do, we'll get in and we'll get through the movie. But we've already mentioned it a couple times. Like, overall, how does this make... Like, you have history with it. Right. But having now consumed them all as an adult, right. where do you rank this? Out of the first three? Out of the first... Because... Uh, yeah, Dude, yeah, Bloodlines yeah. On almost isn't worth talking about. Come well, on. Well, because we haven't reviewed any of those either, This right? might so be this the is, last decent one. I think a lot of fans would argue you're right. So out of the the first three, I would say, yeah, because the first two are, are so closely attached to Clive Barker and that whole team, right? Mm-hmm. Almost through default, they're going to be better because they're they're closer to the roots. No discredit to this one. I feel like this one's a little bit more inter- in entertainment and in terms of an American fashion, mm-hmm. right? It follows certain beats and, you know. It almost is a slasher in this one. kind of is, you know. Almost. That's what I'm saying. It's... It's easy to follow because of that, and it's entertaining enough, too, because the characters aren't super flat. They have their moments, but they're also still likable in in some respect. Even when they're not likable, they're doing Mm -hmm. their job well is what I'm getting at. So I think overall this is an entertaining film, but it still would be the third out of all three of them, Mm -hmm. even though as much as I like it. Do you have a one and two out of the other two? Because uh, I think right now I'm number two is number one for me. Yeah, I think because it's it's probably more fresh. The first one is good, but the second one's just like different level. Yeah. yeah, just a whole different level. I remember that being the big takeaway after rewatching it 161 episodes. Yeah, ago. just being like, oh fuck, Hellbound is good, dude. It really is. However, because of the time period, when I think of Hellraiser, I probably think of this box art first. Yeah, that's a good point. Where, if I'm not mistaken, they cropped Pinhead's image out of the original Hellraiser. Yes, you can very much tell. <laughs> yeah, just superimposed it in the backdrop. Or the but I remember the more fiery background yeah, rather yeah. than the blue background when I Which think is, of this. Which is, that's funny. <laughs> but yeah, like I, said, I definitely have a history with this more so than the original two, but... Yeah, I know a little bit off air we were talking about this, and it it makes me giggle a lot when I think that this film is supposed to be set in New York, but knowing that it was filmed in Greensboro, North Carolina, like it makes sense too in a particular scene, which you don't see in a lot of part of the country. So I'll talk about that too, why it's 
why it makes sense that it was shot in North Carolina for those scenes. Oh, okay. Yeah. But the downtown, when she's running around much later in the film, it stands out like a sore thumb. That is yeah. not New York. <laughs> I was telling... I Nothing New York about that. That didn't jump out to me when I was watching the movie until you brought it up a few minutes ago. But that's because most of the movie... The place didn't look enough like New York for me to be thinking of it as New York to begin with. Yeah. They just do a real quick cuts of these establishing shots of what New York City looked like in the 1990s, early 1990s. We talked about it. And I never pay attention enough to those establishing shots in the movie. Because they're so quick. But outside of just those Mm. few shots, they don't make any more mention of the fact that it's in New York City. And none of the rest of it looks like it. (laughs) Not even close. Other than maybe the view out of her window. Yeah, that's about it. Maybe. That's about it. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. So that's what they, it made me giggle a little bit thinking about that because it's like, oh, that is that's so North Carolina. Mm-hmm. All right, so movie starts. Mm-hmm. And my very first note. <laughs> I think I know you're going to go with this. <laughs> is, is this asshole trying to be Josh Brolin or Matt Dillon? <laughs> Why not both? What? Why not both? <laughs> right? I, I like it. You can say James Dillon, Matt Brolin. <laughs> One of my first, maybe not note, but mental note, was like, oh, they're using like this matted background. Oh, didn't pay attention Him to that. driving up on it. I was like, oh, that's so early 90s. <laughs> but I get it. I get it. It's a new technology for that time period, so they're experimenting a little bit. But this... And I don't mean this to be a dig at the rest of the movie, Mm because I did overall enjoy this movie. But the second best thing in this movie happens right away. And even though it's super obvious that, like, (laughs) he's an evil, creepy guy, this is one of the best evil, creepy guys that we have seen in one of these movies, as far as my money's concerned, that fucking sells him that pillar. Yeah. We've done these enough that we get it. It's a trope. That character exists. But it is done very well. No. I don't know what it is about the guy's performance. You know what it is? You but I hear, fucking love it. You want to hear I something funny? What is it? Yeah, it's yeah. one of the producers. I think it's uh, the Mordorf guy. He kills it. Yeah. He kills it. He's the one of the best fucking <laughs> obvious setup you're entering into a horror zone guy. Oh, yeah. Seen. It shuts up the entire film. His own was just attached like, it's the exact amount that I, I was thinking of. It's perfect. <laughs> you give me what you think. By the way, if that's what somebody's telling you to pay them, run. They're setting you up for something bad. Oh, yeah, you know, and nothing's good going to come from it. I'm just, I mean, maybe that's obvious, but just, like, real-life advice. If somebody's like, just, you want this giant piece of art? Just just pay me what you think. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. No, I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm good, bro. (laughs) I'm really good. After seeing what he purchases, which there is a difference between what we see at the end of Hellbound, right? The way that the Pillar of Souls comes up. It's more wooden. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a wood creation. Is it supposed to be the same pillar? No, it's different. It's two different pillars. I mean, mean, it's supposed to be the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But But, I mean, like within movie verse, it's supposed to be the same pillar. Exactly. Why don't they ever show its transformation? Because they show the old pillar, too. Right. And that's I've read and heard some things about perhaps some kind of lapse, or whether it's handling or people coming in contact with Pinhead and the Lament box and all that stuff. And also, if, that it's, we didn't see. if it's that pillar, I super hate that it's like 
forever stuck in our world because that other pillar only ever pops up when the box gets opened. Yeah, and you're like, whoo, fuck that. <laughs> That's part of, like, shit went wrong. I didn't think it was supposed to be the same pillar. I thought somebody was just, like, an asshole and imprisoned Pinhead <laughs> somehow because he got yeah. beat at the end of the last movie. From what I understand, this is supposed to be the same pillar of souls. Okay, yeah, I kind of hate that. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's, there's I already hate that. I understand why they did it in this film, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious. All right, so JP gets his hands on it, right? And then almost immediately, we get the introduction of Joey, right? Because she's a newscaster. She's kind of down on her luck. She's not getting the story she I wants. her introduction. Yeah, where she's like, she's basically, fuck this. I <laughs> can't get in those stories. Everybody else is getting them. This is bullshit. Once again, oh, fuck. Sounds like I'm going to get down on this movie. I overall enjoyed it a lot. Her intro might be her best scene. Perhaps, yeah. She does fair. I mean, she carries a she movie fair. fairly decent. She has a couple parts that are yeah. kind of bad. Parts aren't her fault. There are parts of this movie with really not good ADR. Yeah. <laughs> I think I know exactly what you're talking about. We'll bring them up, of course. And so there's a story that breaks, and... Her cameraman's off because there's another reporter already on the scene. So she's like, you know, I'll just oh, her, catch the bus. Her cameraman, Discount James Remar? Yeah, Discount James Remar. <laughs> he was, I think, friends with somebody in the production company. That's They said they just wanted somebody who had like an everyday working guy kind of look. You know, and that's why they chose him. It makes sense. I mean, he fits the part. To me... This makes sense because you came in while I was recording my other podcast. So I've had this on the brain, but... Other than having long hair, he reminded me of James Remar as Raiden in Mortal Kombat Annihilation. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Speaking of James Remar, I've been watching Dexter with my nephews. Mm. So there's that. Nice. Yeah. That's how they liking that. I think some of it, it's because it's so procedural. They kind of, and they're young, so they kind of lose a little bit of interest. But when it ramps up, then it's like, all right, you know, it's natural. I understand it. Right. But uh, I fucking love Dexter. Yeah. Not to go off on too much of a yeah. tangent, but Dexter's better than this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So like I said, we get the introduction to Joey. Her cameraman's off to cover that other story. She stays behind. She's basically lamenting, like, she just needs that story, that one big story to catch her break. Well, and once again, like I said, her intro might be her best scene and might have the most clever line in the entire movie when he's like, hey, maybe you're better, you know. The story of your life could be right around the corner. She's like, it is the story of my life, which. Boom. Yeah. Well, first off, (laughs) the story of her life is right around her corner, but like it's a super clever line for the rest of this movie, considering she's saying that just messing out is the story of her life. Yeah. Which. Way more clever a line than the rest of this movie gets. Yeah, I mean, there are bits and pieces, yeah, that are decent, because they do carry over some of these same people. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have a little bit of that carryover. (laughs) All right. But what I do enjoy about the scene is the quickness of it, because she's at the ER, and she's like, there's nothing going on here. That was her story spiel. But then immediately, as catapulted with this guy, has chains coming on, on the gurney. We see that jet black young girl with him. Chaos is ensuing. We learn that that's uh, Terry, the character, right? So we get a brief introduction. And then not soon after that, when she bolts, the dude starts to become electrified and <laughs> fucking blows up. That was pretty gnarly. Yeah. That was the scene that most reminded me of, like, there's only two movies before, but I 
classic Hellraiser. Yeah. Because yeah. we've pointed out a couple times, this movie tonally does not feel like the others. It doesn't. And that, the electrified and chains out of nowhere and all that, that felt the most like the older movies to me. It did. I agree with you there. Because it was so abrupt and dark and like, what the fuck? So once we get out of that, that's when we get those establishing shots and you get to see the Twin Towers, all that good stuff. But making this long story short, we get to see that Joey's going to the club, the boiler room. She gets that much information out of Terry, right? And this is where some of that ADR comes into effect. Because it's like, at a club like that, and every time you're asking a question, it's crystal clear. No, I'm sorry. No. No. <laughs> Ain't happening. Also, going through that club... I have a lot of respect for Armored Saint, but that ain't my fucking bag of metal, dude. I'm like, I'm good on this shit, dude. I got respect for these guys. That guy, that singer right there, uh, Johnny Bush, I believe is his name. He ended up being the lead singer of Anthrax for a few Uh, years when Joey Belladonna left. That's pretty Uh, awesome. Joey's back. Yeah. And that's who I saw Anthrax with was (laughs) Joey. But, like, I got respect for the Armored Saint guys, but... They're not quite my bag. I understand that, yeah. <laughs> Understandable. I wasn't jamming the same way other people were jamming to it. I know what you're saying. <laughs> All right. So what we get is the introduction to her meeting JP, right? He's trying to give her the rose. She gives him that little snarky line and, you know, I'm not your type. I'm not in grade school. <laughs> All right. But Pisses off everybody at the table. Yeah. And he's just like, whew. <laughs> but Terry in the background, she notices that. She makes that phone call, and that's where they hook up at her apartment. We get the first little bit of Joey dreaming of her dad in oh, Vietnam yeah. and all that stuff. So she, there's a little bit of a connection between that, too, with Ashley Lawrence from the original, Kirsty Cotton. I think, God, I feel like even one of the writers has commented on the fact that this movie does parallel the original. Like, they made sure that certain character relationships paralleled the original, but... For better or for worse. I don't know if yeah. that's good or not. but Especially because nah. they didn't do it well enough to make it super jump out. But that's one of the things that is more obvious from that relationship. Exactly. And I think that's why they they chose to do things like this. And it's, it's not bad. It gives you kind of an idea of her character and what happens later on in the film. How she becomes acquainted with Captain Spencer and all that stuff. But that's the first little signs that we see of that and the glimpse that we get of that. And yeah, she gets jolted out of her sleep because Terry calls her and whatnot and she's very wiry that girl right Mm -hmm. easy on the eyes but very wiry kind of spastic yeah i was kind of about terry yeah she's cutie pie yeah not gonna lie but she winds up you know starting to talk about the guy she's like i don't know the guy he wound up taking this box what you saw is what happened as a result of it and she digs into her bag and she presents the lament box and like all right there it is there we go Mm-hmm. And what I like, there's a psych out moment that happens almost immediately after all that is where JP, he's, you know, he's kind of hanging out in his little loft area. He's looking at the pillar and he notices the box is missing. And then he does the classic like, oh, I shouldn't put my hand in there, but I'm going to. I'm going to. And then fucking. Classic psych out. There's a fucking rat, rat monkey. <laughs> That's where it would have been Peter Jackson. Perfect. Dude, how awesome I would that have that, been? I made that note before I learned the Peter Jackson thing. I'm like, the fucking Sumatran rat monkey got him. And then I was that looking up my trivia like an hour later, and I'm like, motherfucker, it would have been a Sumatran rat monkey. 100% that he would have been. made it the rat monkey. 100%. Such a awesome crossover. 
right? Connecting universes. <laughs> you know he would have done it. He put the fucking he put the sign for it and got God. in King Kong. Dude, yeah. There's no reason he wouldn't jump at the opportunity. If it's going to be a rat, why not make it a rat monkey? Yeah, duh. <laughs> that would have ramped this film up so much. But I do like the psycho because all it does is give you the idea and the fact that the statue, along with Pinhead, become kind of revitalized because it draws in the blood. JP thinks it's cool or whatever. This is where they also, the Wait, girls break in. That's another thing. I don't care how much you're into macabre art. Yeah. If you own a statue and it starts absorbing blood, get rid of the statue. That ain't cool. <laughs> that ain't cool. You would think that this, you know, this should be obvious. It probably is obvious to a lot of you. But his reaction and the fact that we're supposed to buy it makes me think, to some people, it might not be obvious. <laughs> I know, right? Disclaimer here, right? So, if your statue eats blood... Not a good sign, Don't fuck folks. with the statue. I don't care how cool it looks. Stop feeding it. Stop feeding it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, the two girls, Terry and Joy... They pay a visit to the Pyramid Gallery because that's where JP picked it up and all that stuff. There's a guy, uh, what I wrote down is a real dickhead because he's walking a dog. But if you watch the way he's walking that right. dog, walking the dog, you're like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? <laughs> that's, a, that's a dick move. Yeah. But what he's telling the girls is that the owner hasn't been there in like months or weeks or whatever. They've been on vacation. And so, you know, red flags go up because JP just got it. They forget needful things. Right. It's closed, but Terry's like, give me five seconds. We'll be browsing. And once they get inside, they come across the files that contain, like, the sketchings of the laminate configuration puzzle Mm -hmm. box. And I think some, like, what we do see is, like, some pictures of Elliot Spencer and I think some stuff involving Kirsty Cotton and all that stuff. So there's, like, a dossier or some files. Is that... Is that where she grabs the videos of Kirsty? Well, she, she makes a phone later? call first. She, oh, that's because right. She they, gets them from the Shinard. She, Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's she right. makes mention. So she's giving us a little expo, you know, the recall back she to the second She could have got it so. Yeah, but that's, you know, at least we're getting the feel for it. All right. Not long after that, this is where JP, you know, he's walking around his club. He finds the pretty blonde. He, like, tells the bartender, yeah, that's, that's the one. <laughs> right? Whatever. She has her little spiel about, oh, this is your club, this is your bar. They wind up banging it out is what they do. So Did you read that, about all that stuff? That She didn't want to be nude, so they made a concession where in the scene... Uh, like her nips are always covered Kevin Barnhart's like cup. He's like, yeah, he, so he and she like decided it'd be best for him to hold her breast instead of her being exposed. But it also leads into another scene coming up too where she's not in it. Even though we see her oh, in it. Yeah, yeah. Right. I can't remember what other movie we ran into this with. But in that scene, did it seem to you like they were trying to sell that it was more deviant sex than it was? Like, they yeah. were have had her reaction be more like she was being tortured in some way rather than, like, literally, like, only handcuffs and getting railed by a dude yeah. that decides to make the great red dragon and the woman clothed with the sun gesture when he fucking comes. This is in no way, shape, or form this comment about to come out of me. <laughs> I'm not trying to compare these films in any way, but because it's so fresh in my mind, I was like, there's just a little part of me where she's having her perfect blue moment. Oh. <laughs> not bad. 
right? Like, is this really happening? <laughs> but aside from that, right, all that really amounts to is yeah, there's a, a devious also hat. you caught like he go he straight on goes fucking great red dragon when yeah. he fucking comes. <laughs> I was like that to me the dirtiest part of that entire scene is the fact that he's like smoking and probably blowing that shit in her face. <laughs> It's like, weed smoke's one thing, cigarette smoke, ugh, no thanks. You know, I'll get into it in a, in a couple minutes. There's something that'll lead right into it, so. We'll yeah, but what it leads into is because, you know, he's just a womanizer. He just wants to bang her yeah. out. And she gets all pissy about it, understandably and rightfully so, where she's yelling at him and she gets closer. She keeps backing into the fucking statue. And then the scene that forever etched in my mind from way back when is seeing her Get catapulted up and get her flesh. Maybe the coolest fucking thing in this movie. Yeah. She gets flayed by the the chains. But here's the cool part, (laughs) is that in between that, the skinless body that we do see is actually the actress Paula Marshall, who's playing the role of Terry in this film, the jet. Oh, shit. Yeah, hero girl. Oh. So, yeah, she decided she wanted to do that part. So that's one of the other two roles that she plays in this film. Okay. Yeah. One of the, I should say, three roles, really, but... All right, so we get that, and we also learn, this is another thing I forgot about this film, is like right after that, they're having a conversation, Pinhead and JP, right, about their acts. He's like, what you did was evil, man. He's, you know, he's like, I got my fill, you got yours, right? (laughs) We both got our fills. And JP winds up getting his gun out, and uh, he gets called out for killing his parents. And he starts to pull the trigger, whatever, a couple rounds into him. Of course, Pinhead spits the bullets out. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot that that happened in this film. <laughs> that was another scene I forgot that happened. But it was one that when it happened, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally remember this. Yeah, the the bullets spit out was a little silly, but yeah, yeah it, was, it was fine. It wasn't bad. It was I will say this, man. You got to give credit to Doug Bradley because I, I read that it was like super uncomfortable to be inside that fucking box. Understandably so. Wait, just your face hanging out. Essentially, oh, yeah, and I saw he was saying something too. The like makeup this was makeup a different was process. The most irritating, of yeah. Any of the movies, and I read that it was uh, the contacts uh, were irritating. As he shit said that the makeup only took three hours to apply, where normally it took about five to six with the other makeup from the previous films. But it fucking it was right. He said even though it, it just yeah, he you couldn't you couldn't function the same. The contacts though, because they were prescription, mm-hmm. he said that he could do his scenes longer. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so that was one of the bonuses of him being in that. But, yeah, just being in the pillar, I read that it was not very comfortable. But aside from that, he said he enjoyed it. So, I mean, hats off. That's kudos. Yeah, but this is where she gets the tapes. So, best part of the movie? Ashley Lawrence in those tapes? She kills it. Best acting in the movie, maybe? Right, and that's not like old footage from the previous films. No. They actually filmed that for this film. And I think it was in post, if I'm not mistaken. Acting-wise, I think that might be the best. She did a great job. Before reading that, I was thinking it might have been like extra footage from... Doug Bradley is great as always. He gets kind of hammy in this movie. A little bit. And I think he does a great job, but there's a couple scenes where I can't unsee how goofy (laughs) his face looks at times. Yeah, you can see the makeup a little bit. It's Mm -hmm. different. It doesn't look as good. And just... He can have a very expressive face. Like, I know that you've seen pictures of him out of the makeup. I'm going to assume that if anybody's a big enough of a horror fan that they're listening to us, that they probably have, too. And I would describe, like, his smile is one of those ones that kind of like when someone smiles in a cartoon and it's like the lips 
and the cheeks around where they're smiling all move and everything else stays the same. So it's suddenly like there's almost like a banana going across yeah, their mouth yeah, just because yeah. they smile. He has a smile kind of like that. <laughs> and Pinhead smiles a couple times in these movies. Yes. In this movie. Which makes the pins coming out of his cheeks align in a way that they just don't look quite right. And it's very obvious that he's just a kind of goofy looking man. A good point, yeah. <laughs> he does become more... But when he has humanized. a relaxed face, like he does most of the time as Pinhead, like yeah. it's fucking perfect. Yeah, exactly. When he's just very stoic. It's just this move in this movie, Pinhead gets emotional. Yeah, he gets more expressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. There's a note that I wrote. Uh, didn't mean to, to rhyme there, but <laughs> during the, her whole viewing of the tapes, good performance by Lawrence, is there's a little bit of static, and that's when Spencer comes through. And he's like, she's telling the truth, Joey. So that's kind of their first encounter in terms of him coming through from the other side. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when you read the themes on it, it makes sense because war is kind of a central theme in this film, too, between what happens with him and her dad. All right, now that you're bringing this up, now is where I'm going to go on my rant. I think that's where this movie fails. Not that they included it as war is a running theme, Mm -hmm. but I think they push too hard on war being like the main running theme of this movie and the only one that they reinforced throughout the entire movie. Yeah, for sure. Starting with like her flashbacks earlier on and stuff, rather than what we're about to run into, especially now that Elliot's appearing to her, which is the theme of duality. Because the real story in this movie is that Pinhead is acting the way he is is because he doesn't have the Elliot Spencer part of him inside right right pinhead as we've known him in the first two movies is captain elliot spencer who has given into his inner demons and created pinhead and they're one in the same because he was defeated at the end of the last movie he got split into two and so pinhead is just the pure evil incarnate part and he's off trying to just create hell on earth and so he's not acting the same and that now makes sense once you figure <laughs> this that universe out. yeah but the duality in this part of this movie is never really well reinforced it's, throughout the movie. Yeah, it's not very well fleshed out. I mean, you know, we kind of get it, but I know what you're saying there. And that's part of where, like, the tonal shift is off. Because, like, the first couple movies, the promise of opening the box is, like, people seek out the box because it's not just pain. It's the ultimate pleasure yep, and the ultimate pain. And that's what Pinhead's always been. He's always been like this neutral figure. Pain and pleasure. <laughs> and now you have a movie where that's unbalanced. Now he's no longer one thing. Yeah, right. Like he's getting to run wild because he's the one that has all the power. That's a really good idea for the movie. And instead they reinforce this stupid all war is the same. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying with that. Instead of leaning into the thing that's yeah. there and is truly the big motivating factor for why Pinhead is acting the way he is in the first place. No doubt. I'm trying to make it more of a morality tell in a sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, eh, I get it for this film's sake, but. I think you can keep most of the same elements and just shift the focus a lot more and start hinting at the duality, the dual nature of things earlier in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And it's suddenly a stronger movie. 
Yeah, and that's I think we like you said having different people getting their hands in on this one is going to change, mm-hmm. and the way it's marketed too. I mean, it's definitely going to change. So yeah, give them a little credit for trying to do something innovative, I suppose. But yeah, it just doesn't it doesn't meld together very well. Mm-hmm. And what I think would have been even more interesting is that. Like, the lame American slasher way that they went with it <laughs> yeah. is that they just made it so that Pinhead is the evil part. And Captain Elliot Spencer is the good part, then, I would guess. Yeah. I mean, he makes mention that he's, like, in limbo, so... In, in a sense, I suppose. Good as compared to Pinhead, anyway. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, at least he's cognitive or aware, mm-hmm. you know, the evil in him. Keep with the weird, like, hedonism angle... And don't make it against good versus evil. Make Pinhead just be like chaos versus Captain Elliot Spencer being Captain Elliot Spencer, yeah, like I'm a man of that. order. And, you know, reinforcing the idea that people need a little bit of both chaos and order rather than reinforcing the boring, you know, <laughs> black and white morality thing. Yeah, exactly. I think that would have been a lot more fun angle to work with. Yeah. But nobody's knocking down my door to remake Hellraiser 3, so... We have mentioned and pitched some ideas for directors. Yeah. <laughs> That's for oh sure. Oh, my God. Sean doing the fucking club scene. God. Dude, it'd be awesome. That's all I could think of when Still I was my watching vote. this. Still my vote for that. Yeah. A few things of note moving along with the story is how... Um, Terry gets manipulated by JP on the phone call, and soon that she hears the false message that uh, Joey's getting a job offer in Monterey, right? She goes back to JP's, Terry that is, and this is where some decent stuff kicks off. I'm going to go off on a slight tangent because I just had a really good idea now that I'm thinking yeah, of this yeah, alternate yeah. version that will never be made, but <laughs> fuck it, this is why we do this podcast yeah, to sure. get fucking stoned and shit, right? You could do my version of it while still reinforcing the war message by just making it so that it's not the stupid-ass pillar of souls, Make it so that Spencer was a war hero and that the blood that's getting spilled is on a monument to him that got ripped down. Oh, damn. Modernize it? Well, not even necessarily modernize it, but just make the comment that, like, war is fueled on blood at the same time as, like... But make it like the statue fucked up in some way. Like, it got blood on it in the past and something changed and that's why it's, like, this macabre art piece. Because, like... I don't know, his face turned to a fucking skull overnight or something. <laughs> so now it's a weird collector piece or something. You yeah, know what no. I mean? Like, that's... I don't I don't give a shit. Like, that's something <laughs> somebody could play around with. But And that, then, you know, the blood keeps going on there, and you start seeing more of the horrors of war. Like, it adds bodies yeah. underneath, like, like, his good figure or whatever suddenly has bodies at his feet showing the true horror of war that then can get mirrored in the fucking weird dream sequences yeah. later. Look, I did a better version of Hellraiser <laughs> 3. God damn it. <laughs> giving these ideas away for free. <laughs> Just let them know we're here. Right. Just in case. Just in case. All right. Long story short, JP winds up getting fed to Pinhead because of his scramble and trying to feed Terry to it. It doesn't work out for him. Works out for her, in a sense. Because she, she mentions that she never dreams in this film, right? That's why she's kind of envious of Joey having dreams, even though they're fucked up dreams about a, a father she never knew mm-hmm. because he died before she was born. But Pinhead promises her, you know, pleasures, unfathomable dreams, what have you. And that's actually the last time we see her as a human. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
And so that releases Pinhead. He's free in the world now. And that's where it leads into that massacre <laughs> at the uh, the club, which is pretty wild. It's it's eh, in the start, but did you notice the that, results uh, at the beginning of that little? Yeah, I think it was at the beginning of that Terry bit when she's sitting on the chair. She's even reading a book about battles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is. I, I read that that was a real book too, like twentieth yeah. century war 20th book century or something. Battles or something. Yeah, like yeah. You're right about that. So when that fucking slaughter starts at the club, I did wish that we would have stayed with the macabre art coming to life a little bit longer because that shit was all super neat because that yeah. that like precedes it by like 30 seconds like these weird art pieces that we saw highlighted earlier in the movie how like it's squeezing and the, the baby heart. starting to yeah move the and, guy on the wall and i wish like we would have lived in that world for like two cool. minutes more where like it's the art pieces that start to attack them first yeah. but instead like shit just starts exploding and then you know it's Hellraiser, so chains. So so many exactly. chains. It did throw me... Dude, fucking... There's a cameo that happens, a death scene in this film. I don't know if you caught it. I didn't catch it. All right. There's a guy who gets his hand caught. He like, catches one of the uh, okay, chains. Okay, so that was... I, don't, I didn't catch who that was, but I did write down in my notes that like that's a fucking pretty baller move to catch one of those chains even if it did end up fucking up his fingers right don't know who that guy is oh okay is <laughs> immediately immediately oh. after that scene like the next cut oh okay. there's a flying cue stick yeah. and the guy gets cued in the stomach yes the guy who gets cued in the stomach was also in waxwork but more famously he was in gremlins and gremlins 2 as billy the guy who actually winds up getting Gizmo. Oh, shit. Yeah. He's the guy who gets... That's fucking wild. Cued, yeah. I paused and I was like, that's totally him. That is totally him. That's fucking wild. I thought it was a fucking baller move to catch the chain. It was. And then he got his fucking fingers ripped off. But yeah, immediately after, I was like, oh, that's Zach Galligan. That's that's the dude. Right when the fucking massacre starts and like Pinhead walks in and the, shall we begin? <laughs> The music he walks out to, I had to re-listen to a couple times. I thought for a minute that Jerry Lively completely ripped off one of the fucking Danny Elfman Batman themes. Mm. The orchestral music he walks into that changes something slightly more appropriate as soon as the massacre actually starts is like a weird, triumphant, almost like superhero theme. <laughs> it was really threw me off for a oh, second. Whoa. <laughs> I could see that. That's pretty wild. <laughs> There's a, a little brief moment that happens with Joey, uh, kind of at the same time where we talked about the fact that there's that crossover where she's listening to like this old-timey radio, and she's getting the message to go to her window, and she encounters Spencer with the box, and then she steps through another portal where it's like this World War One like, dead body. I mean, there's a lot of motherfuckers who yeah. are extras in this film, and they all play dead bodies for the most part. I think they did a really good job, actually, mm -hmm. uh, considering. But the whole point was, is like, he's explaining to her what you already mentioned earlier, and that, you know, they need to send them both back to hell yeah. with the box. They're all wars are the same war, so you kept dreaming of your dad being in war. That's so how I had the crossover. Yeah. What not. I was like, ah, that's kind of a weird way trying to make sense of all that shit. Especially because she doesn't actually know any details of her dad being in war. None. Absolutely none. So it's essentially just false memories or what mm -hmm. she perceives as whatever the truth is. She also sees a false news report 
you see that news anchors like there's shit popping off loose down here at the club. She's getting buck wild. Dude, I had to write fucking Doc is true blue because she calls him up about that He's shit. He's out about it. And he even checks out the channel and nothing's, Nothing. nothing's doing. And he's still like, look, I said I was going to help her. I'm going to get up and do this. Yeah. Friends ask for help. You help them. That's right. True Letter blue. Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he does. He, he pulls through and she moses on down. She takes the staircase, I guess, in the back door, and that's where she starts seeing all the carnage, the dead bodies piled up. And it's like, damn, that's I kind of pretty wish decent. We I don't always have to see the violence happen. Right. I kind of wish we would have got to see some of those happen. The but ones that we honestly, saw were kind of cheesy. Even some of the ones that, like, yeah, some of the ones we saw were kind of cheesy, though, so I'm... I'm glad that some of the after effects were as well done as they were. Yeah. The chick with the fucking inverted cross carved into her that face. That was awesome. That was really good. I even like when she's first entering into the building is kind of in the background. When the camera's rising, you see like bodies already hanging. You're like, oh, okay, yeah. here we go. Yeah. And then when she's walking throughout, you know, she's gasping because it's just piles of bodies, piles upon piles of bodies. <laughs> And that's when um, old Pinhead finally comes out and confronts her and all that good stuff. Well, as she, I love when she gets into the room where she finally runs into Pinhead. Yeah, but she sees her buddy. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. Well, she sees her buddy and she sees Doc. But what I liked is like as you got closer and closer to Pinhead, the bodies became less and less random. And like in that room, the bodies are lined up to like be an audience to what's going on. Yeah, it kind of lights the stage. Everything is very staged, and yeah, I thought that was really neat. It is. It's really cool. He pretty much is demanding the box, and Spencer's already told her that the only way that he can gain the box is if he asks for it and someone gives it to him. Well, one more thing about the the club thing, Mm -hmm. because of how hard they were trying to ram the war thing home in this movie. Was the reveal supposed to be the equivalent of what we just saw of the battlefield, do you think? Like the comeback in to see everybody all fucked yeah, up the way the that carnage. did? Is it, is it basically supposed to be the battlefield? I, th- but, I think that's probably a good parallel, like bringing the horrors. Because they didn't really reinforce it, life. but looking I, back yeah. on it, I'm like, I think maybe that was part of it. Like we I think just so. came into her dream to see a lot of bodies lying around. Good and point. so we just came into here to see a lot of bodies, but it had a much different tonal feel. I, I think it really totally agree. I mean, the connection's totally there, but it's not one that's like so obvious. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That, that it has to be, but it's still kind of a weird way of incorporating that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I get it. It makes sense, but it's just a weird way of doing it. I mean, I like the bodies piled up. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's no, freaking no, 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 awesome. I got it. It's like, damn, there's a lot of bodies in here. There's a lot that's of extras. Cool. That's cool to me. That's cool. And there was a, I mean, a lot of some people. Some of it was like every like not other person, but like every other other person had like nothing done to them and just had like a little bit of red on their yeah. cheek. But like Put every other it. person had something cool done to them. Yeah, there were some really good special effects, like makeup done. Maybe some prosthetics here and there, but. It's really funny when Pretty you're decent. really studying through those all those bodies, though, and see yeah. how many of them are just, like, a little it's bit a little of touch here. Up. Yeah. All right, get in there. <laughs> Sit your ass still. <laughs> all right. Because Pinhead cannot gain access to the box, it leads into this very long fucking chase scene that involves her running away from electrified water on a sidewalk. It's like, okay, that's cheesy shit. And then when... Once she escapes the water, even though the water's not coming anymore, she's running by shit, it's just exploding. Yeah. 
It's like, damn, Michael, babe, be proud. <laughs> Gotta have some explosions. She's doing some of that end-of-day shit. No, mind you, too, that's supposed to be New York City. And we've seen New York City multiple times on this show and filmed. <laughs> that's, Greens- that's Greensboro. Downtown Greensboro, 1991, 1992, whenever they shot this. <laughs> Y'all can't see me fucking shaking my head, but the fact that that's supposed to be New York. Now that you reminded me that close. that's supposed to be New York, I can see it in my head right now. And there's so funny. nothing about it that seems like New York to me. No. Right. I ain't ever even been to New York. Nothing about that seems like New York oh, to I've me. been there, done that. It's nothing, not even close. I don't care, even if you're in like in the East Village. That feels more like Midtown than this does, like, downtown Midtown, <laughs> period. All right. We get the introduction to the new Cenobites, though, right? We get her buddy, Doc, who's got the camera. Now, it makes sense a little bit because there's a little bit of homage to Shinya Tsukamoto with Tetsuo, like the body horror incorporated with technology and stuff like that. Yeah, I hated these new Cenobites. Right. They... They're not good. He even mentions that. He he does mention that pinhead, that is. He's like, these are kind of like, he doesn't say it verbatim, but he says these are kind of like watered-down versions. Yeah, Yeah, shadows of his former troops. Well, I think it's because he had to make them himself, whereas in the past... Yeah, they're handmade. They were made by the engineer. Yeah, exactly. And these were people who were in some way or shape, form, yeah, in direct contact. So, yeah, a lot different here. And I get what this... Another social commentary it's making about technology and... But they don't really take the time to do it. No, 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 no. It's just very brief. Even like the CD guy, I'm like, okay, I get it. Now it's totally... That was the worst looking one. It's totally dated now. Like super dated. Back then, it's like, oh, that's cool. It's CD, dude. Whatever. Not so much now. Dreamer basically just looked like almost exactly like the other chick, right? Yeah. That's Terry again. So that's the third role she plays in this film. JP... Gets the motor head because that's when he dies. Mm-hmm. He gets that motor rammed through his skull. And we get the barbecue guy, that Barbie one, man. That, that was a bartender. Right. That one didn't make sense to like Just the way of, he died, he had the barbed wires, but I don't understand the barbecue. Well, no, the, the bartender one actually made sense to me because the way he's introduced is with oh, a Oh, yeah. Well, drink. That's, that makes Yeah, that's totally mm. makes sense. Which I didn't point out. The shaker, yeah. Well, the camera moves over onto him too quickly, and so he's having to hold that position for like a second before (laughs) she actually like says her line so he can turn. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) Yeah, that's Peter Atkins, that guy. Yeah. Yeah, the Uh, writer. mm -hmm. That's just really cool. I thought, with the way he looked, I thought for sure it was Narcisse from Nightbreed, but then I looked it up and he's not Narcisse. (laughs) He does have that look, though. Yeah. So... She comes in contact with these cops who roll up. Oh, wait. Super I'm still cheesy. trying to figure out why JP got fucking the pistons to the head. Oh, it's it's when he got kicked over by Terry. I know, but I mean, oh, every, oh, the, all the other I, ones I have something to do with I see them. what you're saying. I don't know if it has to do with his car or, or I did write down. Is it because of the thrusting of fucking? Could be too. Could be, yeah, it could be more of a euphemism or whatever. I don't know how, I might be stretching once again. Early on in the film... When he's in that gallery and he's walking around before he even comes in contact with the the pillar, mm-hmm. there's a background piece of art and it looked a little bit like that. And I was like, ah, maybe I doubt it, but I think it has more to do with like the sex drive and that would make more sense, yeah. I guess, especially because it's through its head, so it's like it's the only thing on his mind. Exactly, driving home a point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes more sense. 
But even then, when they contact, it's still kind of, I don't fucking it's care so about cheesy. any of the new Cenobites. They're no, so they they, they they were they weren't good. Like I said her cop encounter was so fucking corny. It was so predictable. And then the guy's like, "That's a wrap." He gives those little one line cheeser, like, "Come on, man." She gets all the way to this like construction site, and that's where you know she runs into Terry. She runs into JP, the Cenobite versions of them. Once again, she's fiddling around with the, the box where it finally becomes open and it traps the souls, but also simultaneously she gets transported to the field. And this is where I said this is another reason why I know this was shot in North Carolina. (laughs) So once she's trapped all the Cenobites Mm -hmm. inside the box, she encounters her father, you know, which we do know it's not her father. It's uh, Pennywise. Got her. But uh, the field that they were shooting in was a kudzu field. Right? Oh. And I think I've mentioned kudzu before in this. And kudzu is predominant in the southeast. Like, that shit grows every fucking where. And then when they pan around in the scene in the field and you see it growing up on poles and stuff, I was like, yeah, that's kudzu for sure, 100%. It's like, that's... I can't identify it by sight, but I know I know of the plant. Yeah, and it's like it that. It's just this vine that grows all over everything they brought it over here i think to to eradicate something else and and mistakenly didn't realize it grew every fucking where especially in the summer Mm. you just can't get rid of it man grows on everything is it useful for anything can you like turn it into a rope or something uh i know tangent here but for those who are curious it actually is a very very potent antioxidant so you can grind it up into a tea form no shit yeah so it has that you know how's it taste i've never had kudzu tea okay i read about it i'm curious about it but it's weird growing up around it and thinking of it in that way yeah that's fucking strange always lost footballs and baseballs in the summertime in kudzu and in the the fall and the winter (laughs) you go out there and find your shit again (laughs) that's how you knew the seasons were changing (laughs) do you know where where it's from it's Japan. It's for oh, it's Japanese. From Japan? Yeah. Like I can't imagine that <laughs> Captain Elliot Spencer in World War One would have been fighting anywhere with Kudzu, <laughs> and I don't believe her father in Vietnam <laughs> was fighting Kudzu. No, no, that's funny, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just like I said it, it, as soon as I saw it, I was like, that is North Carolina, one hundred percent, not New York City. <laughs> but, all right. So, tangent aside. He tricks her, he gets the box, but it also transports him back to Elliot Spencer, right? Mm-hmm. Step through the mirror of her mind or whatever. Uh, they have a tussle, right? And she gets uh, set up in some bondage gear. I was like, ooh, not bad. <laughs> kind of kinky, kind of <laughs> like it. I think the guy, Doug Bradley, you know, he questions himself because he's both Pinhead and Spencer. He's like, uh, I know you kind of like this. He doesn't say he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, long story short, is because of their struggle and they're starting well, no, to blend. Well, no, but he does say like, "I do think we belong together." So, so I'm getting out. Not wrong with that. <laughs> well, and the classic pinhead thing is, Elliot Spencer had to seek it out himself. Exactly. So exactly. I mean, pinhead is a part of him. Yeah, essentially. 
I did like their merger reminded me a lot of something we'd see in like a Stuart Gordon flick. Yeah, I was like, that looked a lot like Society and From Beyond and films mm-hmm. like that. The body horrors, like that was pretty it dope. Was pretty dope. It was pretty good. That was one of the few times prior to like the newer guy that played Pinhead. I can't. I don't even remember who the the guy's name is, but they had to have a stand-in mm. for that. Doug Bradley said that was for him very concerning because. He's never seen anybody else, and he didn't want somebody to fuck it up. Right. <laughs> you know, do it. So, I mean, I get it, you know. Scene looked good, though. But, yeah, she gets the box to give it, like, a shape of a dagger, and she stabs him, and he gets trapped once again. And what she does is she sticks it into some wet concrete and a foundation of a building that later on we find out that the entire design is based around the Lamid box. I thought that was the coolest. That was clever as fuck. That was clever as shit. Dude, and it looked just... I love the designs on the the box anyway, so it looked fucking cool as shit. Yeah, even the outside statue that you see is like the inner works of the the box. I thought the the only thing that was kind of corny was that there was like an ottoman or something that was just straight up the box, which... Uh, yeah. Everything else wasn't straight up the box, and I thought it was cool the way I that they it, worked man. in all the facets of the box. Yeah, and see, no, because there was talks, of course, and, and prior ideas of what the third one should have been, we've already mentioned a little bit, alluded to it, is that they kept some of those ideas into it, too, because they wanted to do a prequel, and that had something to do with Egypt and shit. So there were some ideas for that in buildings that were, you know, based upon this, like a machine, mm-hmm. like some kind of factory, I think. So, yeah, I was like, okay, they kept some ideas and thoughts into it. So overall, like I said, not a great film by any stretch. The last, I don't know, 10 minutes or so of this film, 15 minutes are kind of like, ah. Uh. Yeah, I'd say overall this film is more good than it's bad. Yeah, yeah, and for sure. And we've worse. There's definitely a few others that we've done that I would I'd watch this over. Oh yeah, likewise. But I mean, it's not great. Yeah, no, I'll put it this way: if it's on late night and I'm just kind of flicking through and there's nothing on, I'll I'll watch a little bit of this. Mm-hmm. I might not watch all of it, <laughs> but I'll watch a little bit of this. Like I said, I Doug Bradley's face gets a little bit goofy at times as Pinhead. Right. But I do like he gives it his all again and he gives a great pinhead performance. No, he does. Even though this pinhead is much different. Oh, man. It's you know, still pinhead. You know, and we it's breeze still right recognizable over. as pinhead. Like, yeah. Before we end this, man, I'd, I'd feel bad if we didn't mention this, is the whole church scene. Oh, yeah. Fuck. Jesus Christ. We breeze over that shit. <laughs> that was fucking dope as shit. I liked all of that. That love... was fucking awesome. Yeah. Now, because it was shot in North Carolina, there was a lot of contention to even film that because it's blasphemous. And so they matted that entire background and shit. Oh. Yeah. So I was like, okay, that's clever. There's no way they would have filmed that inside of a church. Mm-hmm. Not in the South. They're, uh-uh. <laughs> no way, buddy. In 91. Yeah, there's no fucking way. Not in North Carolina. No way. <laughs> I don't care if it was in Asheville. That, that ain't happening. But the thing I do like about it is, is Pinhead has some really cool lines in it. You took a really cool Graham shot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's so good. That's so iconic. I am the way. Yeah, that was that's fucking dope. But what he tells the priest in that scene is he says, this is my body. This is my blood. Happy are those who come to my supper. <laughs> and he feeds him a piece of him, but he spits all that shit out. Man, that was not a bad scene. That was It kind of felt more in lines with the original, too, is what I'm getting at. So, uh, yeah, everything else. 
you know, it's fine, I suppose. Not bad. It has its moments, you know. There were some things that I, I remember, and there were some things I was like, I'd rather not remember. <laughs> but like so overall, it's entertaining. It's uh, not a bad entry into the franchise. By far not its worst. By far. Oh, it goes downhill in a big way from here. Dude, I can't recall if I've ever seen any of these from here on out all the way through. I, I'm almost certain I haven't I mean, at this point. I might have caught bits and pieces. For the show, we'll have to. One oh, yeah, days. yeah, yeah. I'm not opposed to that at all. I'm, I'm just not saying. looking forward to it, to be honest. <laughs> it's a, it feels a little bit like we're going to go into watching Inside and Martyrs and not the good ones. That's exactly how it feels. That's exactly how it feels, dude. I'm not looking forward to it, but I kind of am. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I still get entertainment out of it. It's fun. But like I said, what it does do, it keeps my interest in this series alive, too. And it makes me want to go back and actually read Hellraiser and some other works by oh, Barker yeah, as well. Heart. Yeah, so... You know, I still have the curiosity there, so eventually I'll get around to it. He's got some good shit. I've read the the Books of Blood collection. Nice. Those are fun, so that's about all I got on this Yeah, no, I'd say if if you're a fan of this franchise, keep in mind, because it it changed hands, it became more Americanized, more marketed as Pinhead as a slasher-type figure, so it was falling in line with... you got to remember, too, a little bit, during that time period with horror films, not at its best moments... Mm-mm. You know, because when you look at some of the franchises, they were already like four or five, six, seven films deep at that point, you know? Yeah. So when this came out, it was trying to a little bit fall in line. And Miramax was trying to make money. So <laughs> they did. I mean, they made a little bit off this. Yeah. They didn't do yeah. too bad. It kept the franchise going. Some of that cocaine money. Which is weird because it actually outperformed, which I can understand a little bit, Hellbound in the box office. It outgrossed oh. it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I think it was a little bit better lauded when it first came out, even. Yeah. But I don't know in hindsight, man. Well, that's what I'm getting at. you got to take in consideration it's, it's American, so it's going to have a little bit of an American appeal to it, which I get. I mean, that's probably why I watched it as much as I did, because it was more attainable at that time period. Yeah. So, as per usual, we've been lazy stoners and not decided what we're going to do next week yet. So we're going to get off the mics and do that. But before we do that, we would super appreciate it if you went and rated and reviewed our show and subscribed so you kept getting the latest episode and all of that good stuff. Head over to our website, www.friedsquirms.com. You can contact us through there or by emailing us, squirmcast.gmail.com. While you're there, check out the links up at the top. We are part of the Earworm Podcast Network. Go check out the other shows on the site. Listen to me talk about nerd shit, which I've referenced a couple times in this episode anyway. Over on General Nerdery, go listen to my co-host there talk about war treatises mixed with nerdy wargaming over on the Art of Wargaming. That website, www.earvrim.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M, is going to be the best place to keep up with any future developments for the network. You can search for us on all the social medias, Fried Squirms, where you will be what pops up. I'll fucking talk one of these days. And I think I hit it all. What did I miss, Danny? No. Just keep in mind, if you have movie suggestions, which keeps us from having to worry about this from week to week. Fucking suggest things and we'll do Yeah, it. we like recommendations. And once again, too, if you're an independent filmmaker or in the industry need some eyeballs on some films, let us know. We're always up for those challenges as well. That's all I got, though, for this week. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms. Out. Out.